Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and welcome. You are about to hear a conversation that I recently had with Lyman Stone. Lyman is an author and a policy fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's also a demographer. So he studies population, and he studies, as he says, people. He uses data, and he looks at various trends and challenges that we face as a society, and then he thinks about what lessons can we learn from that data. He's particularly interested in how we can learn from problems and become a more flourishing and healthy society. So as you listen to this conversation, I think it's important to think about the fact that over the last year in 2020 and now coming into 2021, we as a society have faced some pretty significant challenges. Obviously, COVID-19, the pandemic, has created all kinds of problems and challenges for us. But there are other challenges that younger Americans face that are really the result of things that happened a long time ago, policy decisions that were made a long time ago. And you'll hear in our conversation, that's one of the things we talk about. Young Americans today are facing problems with employment, with housing, with health and healthcare that people 50, 60 years ago didn't face in the same way. We're all facing new challenges from the pandemic, as well as from polarization and the toxic nature of public discourse. What can we do about that? And what can we learn about what we see in demographic data? That's the conversation that I had with Lyman, and I hope you enjoy it. you was an article you wrote in the Atlantic a couple years ago, 2019, which I remember reading at the time and went back and looked at recently. Uh, And the title is The Boomers Ruined Everything. And I know sometimes we talk to people and they say, oh, I didn't give it that title. That was the editor. Except (laughs) the first line of the article is the baby boomers ruined America. So I'm assuming you had something to do with the title. (laughs) The title, uh, I have no objection to the title. (laughs) And it's, I mean, it's a great title because it catches the eye. But I think one of the things I would love to talk about is first, uh, and, and, and we'll talk about the piece and about the, um, about the points you make there. And then I want to get sort of an update on your thinking about all of this in the intervening, you know, two, not quite two years, but along with having a pandemic and all of that. But I want to back up before we talk about that and talk about your background and sort of what leads you to the kind of work that you do. Now, you're, um, you, you do writing on a lot of different things, but you are, it's fair to say, a demographer, yes? Uh, yes, I, I think that's fair to say, although I end up wearing a lot of different hats. Okay. Uh, and and when I, whenever people ask, like, how did, you, how did you get into this work? It's like, well... Uh kind of was walking backwards and tripped and fell into it. So, <laughs> I mean, that like, to be fair, that's an interesting question. Like how you get into that, like do kids grow up saying, well, I really want to study population. But I mean, given your interest in that, it leads to a lot of different things. So I guess, how did yeah, you it turns fall out backwards Most issues that? have to do with people at some point, right? So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so like if, if, if you rephrase it from demographer to like, what do you do? I, I study humans. I study like, humans. That's broad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but there's a lot of ways you could study humans. This is not, I mean, like you're working on a PhD right now, aren't you in this? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To ask a question that people do ask you, how do you find yourself in a PhD program in demography? Like what, what are the steps that you fall backwards into that? That's, that's a good question. So, I mean, I, um, when I was a young lad, um, I dreamed of, of being an economist um, because I was a weird young lad. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I went to college and I did economics and international affairs. And I went and got a, my MA at, at GW in D.C., um, uh, in, uh, international trade and investment policy. And then I worked, I worked as an economist at the think tank and then for the government. Um, and that, that's what I really thought I was going to do. Um, but over time I kind of got interested in, um, migration and population and places and stuff like this. And, um, and it just kind of spiraled into, uh, learning demography. Um, I, I had some classes that I'd taken in migration, but not in formal demography. So I was kind of teaching myself a lot of this. Um, and I think I did reasonably well teaching myself a lot of it. Um, and so I started doing a lot more writing about demography and, um, I started doing, um, like consulting work and stuff. Um, but I eventually kind of got to a point where I was like, gee, I've, I've really gotten to the point where like, I've taught myself all I can teach myself. I kind of need some actual training in this. That's <laughs> I how it should probably, I should probably like get some, some outside opinions on what I'm doing. Let's talk then about the boomers ruining everything, because I think this is, I think we have a lot of boomers in our audience. So that I'm sure be interested in hearing about this. Um, But I think, I mean, I think it's an important argument that you're making that has to do with uh, generational, um, uh, generational trend, I guess, maybe. But I I think we should dig into what that, you know, kind of, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a good title to get people. It's provocative, but what does that mean really? So boomers have affected the way we think about our institutions boomers have affected the kind of policy we make in what ways? So the, the first thing to, to just kind of get out of the way on this, that when I say boomers, um, I'm using a term people recognize. I don't actually believe in generational differences. That is, oh, okay. I don't actually think that like the cutoff between being born in the boomer generation and being born in um, what's the next generation um x or something must be a generation x i think yeah like being born in the next generation like i don't actually think that like there's some seismic difference here um i'm using this as a shorthand to talk about americans who were of age to be making political decisions um from like uh, the, the 1950s and 60s until the 1980s and 90s. Now, mm-hmm. that's more than just boomers. That actually includes a lot of greatests and silence as well, right? Um, but there's not as many of them around, uh, so they, they don't make as good of a headline. Uh, so, so in the actual paper that I wrote uh, that, that this was all based on actually doesn't really talk about generations very much at all. Um, that's just kind of the, the public presentation of it. My actual argument is basically then in the, in the middle and latter half of the 20th century, American policy took a weird turn. Um, 
and my argument is is that the, the turn people also often talk about is sort of the growth of the modern welfare state, right? Um, that it's like the New Deal and everything that came from that. And that's actually not my focus. My focus is on the regulatory and the bureaucratic state. Um, and essentially the, the growth in um, a regulated bureaucratized society um, where choice is increasingly constrained. And when societies confront a problem, they use mechanisms of control and centralization to address that problem rather than choice consistent or decentralized strategies. So um, there's actually, uh, um, uh, well, I could go on about this a lot. There's, there's a book I didn't cite in, in the, the article because I hadn't read it, but it's making a very similar argument um, about sort of paradigms for development in poorer countries in the world. Mm-hmm. That's uh, William Easterly's um, tyranny, the, of exper- yeah. uh, tyranny of expertise or tyranny of experts or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's actually making a very similar argument as I am, that basically societies confront challenges and they have options about how to address those challenges. And sometimes there are solutions which are based on individual choice, individual liberty, um, non-centralized power, democratic solutions. And then there are also solutions that are based on centralization, authoritarianism, control, regulation, bureaucratization. Um, And my argument is that across a very large number of choices confronting Americans over the last 60, 70 years, we have persistently chosen these more centralized authoritarian regulatory solutions. Um, And that that we we have not really chosen more sort of liberty consistent solutions. So I go through all kinds of examples, things like occupational licensing, um, things like how we confronted the crime wave and and how we think about it. Um, Things like housing and zoning, uh, education and how we think about the role of education in our society. Um, and the broader thing, and then I have a whole section on mortality, where it's not so much there's been a loss of freedom, but I point out that younger generations are facing a fundamentally deteriorated public health situation as well. Um, and so, let's, so if my, I can, if I can stop you just for a second, yeah. When you mention those things, so let's take some of those examples. So you talk about housing, a more regulatory um, or a more constrained way of dealing with housing involves. Um, you know, a lot of zoning regulation, mm-hmm. um, restrictions on building, uh, which affects people who are younger by not, they, they don't have the same options in housing or aren't able right. to purchase housing. So they put off life decisions late till later right. um, because of that. Um, when it comes to crime, we incarcerate um, disproportionately, we incarcerate people in this country, um, you know, in response to reasonably in response to crime. Uh, and in occupational licensing, we've had a number of people come on to talk about that, but it is harder to get a job because you have to have more licensing credentialing and all of that right. as a result of this kind of decision making. Yeah. Right. And my argument is basically all this adds up to younger Americans not experiencing the opportunities that older Americans did. Yeah. Um, that, that essentially what we're looking at is a situation where younger Americans um, are more likely to die young. Um, they have fewer work opportunities um, because of occupational licensing. Even if they get a job, they're going to have a harder time affording a house because of uh, changes in American attitudes towards property and land use. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and when I say occupational licensing, people actually, they focus on the occupational licensing. But the thesis of the, the paper is actually that um, modern educational norms 
are de facto licensing, right? Mm -hmm. A BA is an occupational license for white collar work or BS or whatever. Yeah. Um, And so, so we think of occupational licensing as as affecting like the trades, right? That's where the focus is. But my argument is there's a lot of jobs that require a degree, um, require a degree that probably don't require a degree. So, um, or, or that there might be a better way of, of getting that training. Um, and so this is, this is basically my argument that younger Americans have legitimate complaints. Yeah. Um, and then I argue that, that those legitimate complaints that, that they're experiencing kind of a worse situation lead to kind of a simmering political problem that I think older Americans need to take, uh, need to take seriously um and recognize and and we need to be thinking about collective political solutions for um and uh um and depending on the audience i'm talking to when i'm speaking about this yeah um if it's if it's like a college student audience basically i it becomes like so you say you want a revolution right like let's talk about mortality rates during periods of political transition like let's think like Let's think about what you really want. Um, and when I'm talking to older people, it's like, think about like letting some steam out of this kettle because, yeah. because it's, it's coming to a boil. So, uh, you know, <laughs> the conversation can kind of go either way sure. from there. Um, well, but, and, but, and in like, addition like, to those this generational difference, yeah. it's not that I think like boomers are bad people. No, no. Right. Millennials yeah. are heroes or something. I'm just pointing that, that, that the experiences that people have in their young adulthood have changed over time and they've, they've changed for the worse and largely because older Americans have made political decisions that disadvantage younger Americans. Right. And in fact um, it's, it's in addition to those kind of results in specific areas, it's also the case uh, that people, younger people today have different life expectancies than people who are older would have had at the same time, right? Like the life expectancy of someone who's, you know, 35 today is different than it would have been for somebody 50 years ago. So this is a bit tricky. So if you've made it to like 45 or 50, your life expectancy today is like higher than it's ever been. Okay. You're doing great. I mean, COVID accepted. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, uh, the problem is that getting to 45 or 50 has gotten a bit harder. Death rates of young Americans are rising. Um, The odds that an American at age 35 will die in a given year have risen about 35 or 40% since 2000. Um, That's enormous. Yeah. And it's driven by a variety of things. Like we talk about deaths of despair, right? Um, But like there's an increase in car accident deaths for this age group. There's an increase in suicides. There's um, uh, homicides are rising again. Um, uh, there's an increase in drug overdoses. Um, there's been an increase in the number of people in this age group who've been killed by police. It's not just deaths of despair. I, I understand people's framing of that. I think they are a kind of death of social disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not necessarily that individual person's despair um there are deaths of social disorder and and i think that that is a different way of thinking about it and i think what we should say is when mortality rates rise for an age group um we should see that as a sign of a kind of social disorder 
Um, there's, a, there's some kind of social pathology at work. That doesn't mean people in that age group are themselves pathological. They might be impacted by decisions made by people in a different age group. Right. Um, but like the classic example of this uh, that, that I often give is like after the Soviet Union fell, mortality rates went through the roof for prime age people in post-Soviet countries. And the main cause was alcoholism, hmm. um, that alcohol related deaths dramatically increased. Um, after Vladimir Putin came to power in Russia, one of the things I think Westerners often don't understand about like why he's kind of popular is that under his governance, life expectancy started to improve again, not least because he cracked down on alcohol. He raised alcohol taxes, he restricted supply. Uh, he actually did a lot of stuff that like kind of addressed this source of social disorder. Um, and so I think we have to understand that younger and, and, and like prime age Americans are facing a kind of social disorder um, that's, that's deeply challenging for their life. And it's something older Americans aren't experiencing. Older Americans, like because of COVID, are now experiencing what younger Americans have been experiencing for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, that is their death rates have risen by 25 or 30%, right? Um, or 40% or something. But like, this is what Americans in their 30s have been experiencing for a decade. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, the example you just gave in Russia, I mean, that's an example, it sounds like, of where there, if there is social disorder, there are things that um, are cause for concern. People reason, might reasonably think, well, we need more regulation. We need more cracking down on things, right? Mm -hmm. Um so, so the, your view in thinking about this kind of tightening control and regulation in these various areas is that it has been, again, it's not that boomers are bad people and that they're trying to make younger people's lives worse. This is, you know, sort of, you're talking about, um, you know, political decision-making over a period of time that has resulted in making younger people's lives more difficult in a lot of ways. Would your response to that be, I mean, you, you point out that younger people, we need to have, we need to be thinking about what kind of revolution, you know, would be appropriate here and for older people to let off some of the steam under this. But is part of, in your view, the, the resolution to some of this or a, a way to address some of this to tighten up on those restrictions? So I think there's a great sort of narrative here um, that we can actually look at for an example of sort of roads not taken. Mm -hmm. So there was, a, there was a crime wave in the 70s and 80s. It was real. Um, it was a very real social problem. And it had a huge impact on American society and politics. And I think we really underestimate the extent to which crime is sort of this er motive of American political history. Um, but it was a very real social problem, right? People responded to it in different ways. So there was a crackdown in policing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's probably in many ways, the most justifiable response. Like you can, you can understand how that response comes about. It's very natural. Um, and there's like some research that suggests it, it may work. Although, yeah. of course, we know that a large part of this wave was driven just by lead poisoning. And so we, we could have done this better by, um, by just not allowing companies to poison people. But, you know, but policing as a response makes sense. But that wasn't the only response. No. Yeah. Right. Another response is changes in residential patterns. Right. So people move out of cities. 
They move into new neighborhoods. And what do they do with those neighborhoods? They very tightly zone them. Mm -hmm. So people, often you get people talking about like YIMBYs, like, oh, we need to liberalize zoning so that we can build 57 million story towers downtown. But the most tightly regulated places are not downtowns. It's like suburban Suburbs. neighborhoods yeah. around them. And if you repealed zoning everywhere, you wouldn't get super tall buildings. That's not what would happen. What you would get would be apartment buildings in neighborhood, in single family neighborhoods or townhouses in single family neighborhoods. And that is what zoning is designed to prevent because those were mentally associated with crime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole race element to this too. Um, but, uh, but I think actually the crime story is really compelling that to the extent people were worried about race, it's often because they made basically racist assumptions about crime. And so I think what we have to see is the way that crime motivated this shift in housing. The problem is once you have this deeply restrictive and exclusive housing system, what happens to all those young people growing up in criminal neighborhoods? Well, they're kind of locked into it. Yeah. They now have way less opportunity. Even if they do get a job, they can't get housing in a good, safe neighborhood for their kid. And so the system perpetuates. And so the kids who grow up in the next generation have diminished opportunity. You know, what was the path not taken? Well, the path not taken is a challenge, is a more challenging path. We took the path we did because it was in many ways easier. Yeah. Right. Just build walls around your neighborhood, basically. But in principle, what we should have done was to the extent policing can solve the problem, focus on policing. Um, and actually, I think we often think of policing and incarceration as going together, but I actually think they're all, they're, they're substitutes. Mm -hmm. That often um, incarceration happens because crime happened and crime happened because we weren't policing enough, right? With more police patrolling, you get less crime. It's not that, it's not that you just solve more crimes, you get less crimes. Um, so I would say that actually police presence is often an alternative mm -hmm. to incarceration. So what we probably should have done is more policing, less incarceration. And, um, and more policing, I think, would have led a lot of homeowners to feel more secure in their neighborhoods and reduce the motive for restrictive zoning. And then we could have more intentionally sort of fought back on restrictive zoning and said, look, we want to preserve this pathway to wealth accumulation um, for the next generation. Yeah. So I think instead of saying what we're going to do is we're going to kind of shell out the money to hire more police to walk the beat. And I do mean walk the beat, not just drive the beat. Right, There's a lot right. of evidence that, that actually walking has a different crime impact than driving. Um, uh, instead of, because that would, this would have cost a lot of money, right? To yeah. hire a lot of officers. Um, so instead of doing that, we said, instead, you know, we're going to put a lot of people in prison and we're going to restrict the ability of the people who aren't in prison to buy homes mm -hmm. in neighborhoods mm -hmm. that are safe for their mm -hmm. kids. Um, so this is a case where like, you can see how we got to the e equilibrium that we got to, but it was a bad equilibrium. It just seems to me that there is so much that is um, connected and intertwined in that, that political decision-making doesn't respond and doesn't, doesn't, consider all of that in total and about those kind. I mean, like in retrospect, maybe we can see that. And maybe somebody who wasn't responding to political incentives could have seen those connections and made better decisions. And maybe I'm letting politicians off too easily here, um, which is not something typically that I would do. But it, it does seem to me that those are big problems 
that are connected that require not, you know, just a hammer and nail kind of response. There's a lot of different things that you, you identified a number of different things that didn't get done. Policy making in a complicated, in a complex society is complicated. Yeah. Um, That's just reality. And, And often you get, sometimes I make these arguments and people say, well, that's like, it's kind of a just so story. And like, of course, in hindsight, you can see how this, but like, there's no way you could see it in foresight. And it's like, they think that because we can't see it in foresight, therefore the bad decision was actually good. It's like, no, no, no. I'm not saying I have all this, all the answers for today. I don't necessarily know what all the solutions are, though. I have some thoughts, but, um, but I mean, at a minimum, we should learn from that. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? It is complicated. And the search for a simple solution is a search for self, for self-deception. Yeah. So uh, these are all things that um, you did talk about in that piece in 2019, but you've been talking about um, before that and after that. I want to turn to where we are now a year and a half or so mm-hmm. later. Um, and given in, in the interim, um, the the global pandemic and how that's affected. You've been very, I think, vocal on our responses uh, to the pandemic and the ways in which we have got a lot of that, I think, wrong. Uh, and I would agree with you on that. Um, and I guess there's there's two two ways we might think about what's happened. We've talked to people who've said, "Well, listen, in the in the face of um, this crisis." It helped us deregulate things. It helped us make decisions that are closer to the kind of less constrained decisions that that some of us might want to see. That's one point of view. And we've talked to people who I think are really smart who think that, um, you know, and they can cite the number of regulations that have been rolled back in that. There's this other point of view that is, is from my you know, money more on in a way that historically, when you look at times of crisis, the exact opposite happens, right? There gets to be more um, intervention and regulation, and that never goes away. Um, it just it it just continues to build on top of it. Um, first, I suppose let's talk about what you think has happened um, over the past you know year or so in terms of our thinking about the kinds of decisions we have to make about um, all of these things, about um, regulation related to occupation, to, you know, education, to um, housing, all these things. What has the pandemic done to this, this kind of trend that you were, you were describing earlier? So, I mean, obviously, um, it kind of looked like we were starting to come down off the big wave of like overdoses and all this that was killing younger people. Well, that stopped. Um, and in 2020, it does appear that deaths of external causes, so car accidents, overdoses, suicides, all these things did rise. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, why that is, is much debated. Um, there's, uh, at least in my research, I've been unable to find any evidence that it was caused by lockdowns per se. Um, but I think we, we have to know it's, it's somehow related to, to COVID and, or, and some of it's related to um, the big rise in homicides we've seen this year that, um, uh, so, so that's definitely gotten worse. Um, in terms of occupational licensing, I would say it's probably gotten worse. 
Um, there are groups doing good work trying to roll back occupational licensing things, but I don't know how successful they are. And what we've seen this year is a whole new wave of occupational licensing, specifically related to health, right? That now, like, you need all your health training and your health gear and like all this stuff, um, all these extra hurdles to work. Um, and I don't think that's going to fully go away. Um, I think we're going to be more health conscious for a long time. You know, in terms of zoning, I don't know that there's been any change there, really. I mean, we've seen some place, some cities over the last two or three years, um, some cities and states pass like sort of things to reduce restrictive zoning. But a big part of my argument is that like restrictive zoning policies are part of it, but like it's not just the written policy. There's the informal policies, right? Mm. There's what happens at the neighborhood meetings. There's all the different levers people have to, to limit construction. So I think we still have yet to see if a lot of these like abolishing single family, how zoning um, rules, I think we have yet to see if these really work. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a million of people to study them, but I think we have yet to see if they work. So there's um, there's that on education you know, I don't think we've seen like a decredentialization in any sense. No. In fact, if anything, the opposite. I think um, the U.S. response was so deferential to uh, experts. And you can't see me uh, on the podcast, but I'm putting very severe scare quotes around experts. Is part of the reason that we are or have been so willing to um, defer to experts or a small set of experts in the face mm-hmm. of uncertainty does that have to do yeah. with our aging our aging population that is is you know that this affected disproportionately too mm-hmm. but but i mean does that have something to do with the way we respond versus canada versus taiwan versus mm-hmm. other places because it's endemic to the way we think no, I mean, every country listens to its experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and people say, oh, Trump didn't listen to the experts. Yes, he did. You can, you, can read, you can read what Fauci was saying. You can look in late February where Fauci did interviews where he said, look, COVID is not that big of a problem. The bigger problem is a wave of juvenile influenza in our school systems in late February um, when like Italian bodies were stacking up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we know now that he was the prime person arguing against strict travel bans in early January. We li- everybody listened to their experts. It's just that the U.S. and Europe had systematically incompetent experts. Um, we just had a worse crop of, le- of experts. Um, and the reason was that we had experts who, um, uh, who, who fundamentally believed that the appropriate model for policy for a small group of sages to manipulate the public into doing the right thing um, rather than clearly communicating what is true um, and trusting the public to do the right thing. So instead of in January telling the truth, which is that this pandemic is extremely severe, we have very few policy tools that that are going to enable us to control it. we, we don't know what the best strategy is, but we advise in all of the above, which is everybody should wear masks. We're going to cut off all travel. Um, like we're just closing the airports and we're posting the military at the border. Um, and once a state starts reporting cases, we're posting the military around that state's borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's what we're doing. And 
you know, we're trusting you all to do the right thing. But beyond that, like we are just quarantining whole segments of the country. Um, that's what we should have done. And that's what would have worked. And that's what is working in countries that have done a better job. Um, yeah. So it's interesting because as you were talking about that, I was thinking to myself, well, it, and, and I may be, um, I may be being Pollyannish about this and I, I will acknowledge that's a possibility. I mean, uh, to me, it's, I'm, I'm wondering whether, someone doesn't think like he doesn't think of himself as I'm thinking he's thinking he's telling a noble lie at some level. I'm not trying yes, to defend. He thinks it's a noble lie and he yeah. said so. Right. Yeah. So you can see the reports of what he was saying early on. He said, we shouldn't get too severe early on because it'll threaten our credibility because yeah. what if it's a false alarm? Yeah. And I'm like, look, you can let the political decision makers decide if it's a false alarm, your job as the health person is to communicate the health risk. Yeah. That's your job. You are not a political expert. Again, going back to earlier when we were talking about uh, being in a in a bad equilibrium and the kinds of things that are are connected and um, overlapping and and trying to disentangle those or look at them in you know their complexity. I wonder too whether um, I mean you know in the midst of uncertainty people rush to have somebody who sounds confident about what they're saying. Right. Yeah. They, and, and I mean, like the, the it says, here's how we're over, fix. over Cuomo, right? Like he sounded confident. Yeah. yeah. Even though he was systematically mishandling New York's response yeah. and lying about what was happening. He sounded confident. And this yeah, is so the thing. People like the sound of confidence and that is the appeal of authoritarian solutions yeah is that it sounds good to say we're going to step in and take control and fix this but often what actually happens is you step in take control and you make it so much worse yeah so now, but i'm, I'm thinking about... I think nothing should have been done no right right it's that the things that could have been done are are different than what we should have done and they're yeah. things that um are easier to enforce and also actually less burdensome in enforcing yeah. saying the airports are closed no one's coming in and out would have been draconian and also it would have been so much easier to enforce than lockdowns yeah yeah like you can't enforce lockdowns and uh um, and in fact what we see is that people social distanced quite independently of lockdowns right they social distanced before the lockdowns didn't increase the social distancing and and lockdowns just didn't didn't do much so they they just Fauci was worried about, oh, credibility. Well, you shot your credibility when you tried to launch an unenforceable policy. Yeah. Um, so what's enforceable is movement restrictions. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of things here. One is I'm thinking just as you're saying this about the practicality of, or the appeal, I guess, of the difference between I'm an expert, I know what what's best for you, and this is what people should do. And I feel very strongly about it versus saying, Look, there are certain things we can do, but beyond that, we need to rely on the kind of civic associations that we have and the social fabric that make those things up. And one is clearly going to be more appealing in the midst of an emergency than the other. But even having said that, I also think it's the case that, you know, we saw a lot about um, sort of a resistance to a variety of, of things, whether it's masks or whatever else, because it's it's a restriction of of you know, our freedoms, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just such a mess 
to to operate in right. that the centralized approach creates opposition. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, so we we acknowledge like we definitely. Um, I mean, there's like I can't imagine someone at this point saying in the United States, we handled it really well and we couldn't have done better. I just can't imagine anyone saying that. Maybe there are people saying that. I don't know. Um, but I mean, if we take all of these things together and we take you know, your piece in 2019, thinking about uh, the way our institutions um, are sort of restrictive and, and, and less dynamic, that kind of thing. And we, we look at you know, the population aging and, and different trends. We take the information that we have now, looking backwards at the pandemic, um, not completely backwards, but hopefully soon looking more back at it than being in the midst of it. Yeah. Um, and, and we say, okay, here's how we've behaved in a variety of circumstances. Here's how certain things impacted different populations, different areas, that kind of thing. When we think about, because I know you care a lot about what, what flourishing looks like, human flourishing and that, when you take all of this information... And we think to ourselves, okay, we can't go back and change what's happened in the past. What we can do is learn from that and think about when we're faced with situations in the future and we think about what a good life is. What should we be doing? I mean, what should individuals be doing, but what should we be thinking, um, you know, in those associations and that about how to do better? I mean, there's so many things that we can do better at. (laughs) So it's like, do better at what? Um, And actually, uh, Again, this is, I'll have an article coming out in, in a couple of weeks. Well, I don't know when this podcast is running, but that's uh, um, about civic associations mm-hmm. um, and, and the role that they play in American life um, and what they can do. And civic associations do a lot of good. But the key problem they face is that they depend on people to commit to them. Mm-hmm. Their, their weakness is their strength. And that is they don't have the ability to coerce. Right. And this is what makes them so valuable because they find ways to induce voluntary action. But this is also what makes them so limited is that they are limited by what is persuadable. When I think about like, what advice do you give to people in civic associations and civic associations themselves? Like, I think most civic associations are kind of already operating near the limits of their persuasive capacity. Mm -hmm. That is most civic associations have goals that they are seeking to achieve. Those goals are hopefully good. Um, and they're, they're usually working rather diligently to try to achieve those goals. And, and I assume that on average, they tend to be fairly efficient. Um, to me, the problem is that people aren't interested in civic associations increasingly. And there's research from the 1918 pandemic that shows after it, people are less, uh, less trusting of each other mm. and of civic associations. Um, and that effect lasted intergenerationally. There's research from uh, a series of flu uh, seasons in, um, in Norway that found that after famines caused by out-of-season frosts, people were more likely to band together and form cooperative associations. But after pandemics and epidemics, they were less likely hmm. to form cooperative associations. That diseases have uniquely antitrust effects. And even if you add up remote church attendance and physical church attendance, 2021 saw a huge decline in church attendance versus the prior trend. Um, I think um, 
we are becoming a less trusting society, mm. a society that is more skeptical of other people, mm-hmm. of groups, of, of the value of listening to someone other than ourselves. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, uh, and at the same time, we're becoming increasingly this like expert cultic society, right? Yeah. I don't want to list. I don't want to go and buy my local newspaper and listen to what my, my peers and community members think. I want to go to the, the national expert who really knows their stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and I understand that because like we are living in a more information dense society, things are more complicated. You, it, it, there is more likely to be an expert at the same time. Like you, you do still live in meat space. You do yeah. still have to deal with these people in this community. You still need human contact. Um, we've definitely learned that we need human contact this year. Um, and so I think we really have to be thinking about not what can civic associations do better, but how can we revitalize associational life in yeah. America? Yeah. Um, and I have um, something like uh, an 80 page report coming out about that. It, at this point, it's practically a book. I think, I think my editor ultimately labeled it with chapters instead of sections, um, but it's challenging. And again, this is one of those things where like, there's limits to what we can do. A lot of this is just down to individual choice and what people want. Right. Um, but, but I think that that is really the question we need to be thinking about. Yeah. When we think about like, why did people retreat to zoning? Well, to a considerable extent, it's because they didn't trust that the sort of voluntaristic associations that they had were going to work. Yeah. Why did people... Um, Ultimately, I think we're talking about, when I talk about social disorder, a lot of this relates to a breakdown in associational life. Yeah, and I, it also seems to me, um, we just, uh, the last episode or two ago, talked to a number of people who uh, work with groups of people getting them to uh, enter into conversation with one another when they have difference of opinion. And part of what came out of that discussion, which was intended to be about what we've learned about encouraging conversation despite, you know, isolation or being socially, physically separated from one another. What came out of that was actually a lot of concern about what it looks like to go back to being in, in physical space with one another and that people are reticent about that. And so at the very same time, we need to be thinking about how to trust one another or to restore some of that trust in one another. We have kind of a disincentive or many people have a disincentive because of the fear of the disease or the fear of, of the virus, I suppose. Um, and what that might do, <clears throat> which makes it, I think, especially complicated, but given what you're saying, I mean, one thing each of us individually can be thinking about is, um, you know, pushing ourselves a little bit to, to focus on those person to person, neighbor, community, civic association relationships as opposed to putting our time into like the doom scrolling and the, you know, focus on what the experts are saying. Like we can give a little bit of that up um, to try and restore some of that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it always, it's always a bit of a truism to say like one way we can make the world a better place is just to be better people. Uh, But like, yes, just get Um, like, um, like spend more emotional energy and effort and time investing in others and especially investing in interpersonal institutions that are useful. So it's not just investing in a relationship. 
It's investing in, in an institution that has some purpose or use. Um, that might be a church. It might be a book club. It might be a, um, a charitable society. It might be any number of things. Uh, one of the arguments I make in my paper is that a considerable amount of what has happened to American society in the last century is the paired growth of two very powerful forces. Um, and that is um, uh, mass media and entertainment. So like television and now internet mm -hmm. and then sports. Um, Americans spend more time on sports than almost any other country. Um, sports and TV are inextricably linked. All the top rated TV shows are sports. And you can actually trace a significant cultural change in attitudes towards sports and entertainment over the last few hundred years. Um, and so I would say we really need to invest in institutions, interpersonal institutions that have some purpose beyond our entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, joining associations that actually have some meaning beyond just, well, this is fun. Right, right. Well, and I think, look, just because something's a truism doesn't mean that we shouldn't say it, right? I mean, sometimes we need to hear those things because we're we're focused on um, or we're distracted by other things, probably more so now than ever. So we will link to, uh, and some of those papers may have come out by the point when the podcast comes out. So we'll link in the show notes to um, that. But if people want to follow your work, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I don't have like a personal website. Um, so you're, you're probably best off just following me on Twitter, on although Twitter. you're going to get a lot of weird takes because uh, <laughs> I, I talk about a lot of different things. That's all right. People can be exposed to a lot of different things. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lyman. We know that you're busy. Uh, and we, as I say, we'll link in the show notes to what we've talked about, what you've got coming out. And we will encourage people to um, follow you on Twitter as well to hear what you have to say. Good to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. One of the things that I will certainly take away from it is that demography sounds pretty exciting. And Lyman has a lot of really interesting information about the challenges that we're facing and how we got here. So while I appreciate all that, what I'm going to be taking away from this and thinking the most about is probably the fact that it's really important that we are able to work in small groups together in civic associations, whether those are religious associations, whether they are things that we happen to have similar viewpoints on, whether we come together because of our kids' schools, whatever it is. These are things that help us when we face crisis. And in fact, because of the pandemic, while we could get together on Zoom and while we could use technology to try and stay connected, it's not quite the same thing. So I've been thinking a lot recently about what my life is going to look like when things start to go back to more of the way they used to be. They probably won't ever be exactly the way they used to be. But when we can actually get together in the same places for meetings uh, in real time without the use of technology and our level of comfort with that. And I think one of the things that's important from this conversation is that there really is an incentive to do that because it will help make us stronger as we face the challenges that came from this pandemic and not just a pandemic,
but a lot of policy decisions we've made in the past. That's what I'm going to think about. I hope you will too. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.